0: I'd like to introduce Peter to you, and Peter's going to come and share. And Peter's one of those men whose brains work at about 15 times the speed of most of ours. Not that I've actually ever met you before, but it sounds good. (laughs) And uh, it's just a great opportunity person here. Uh, Peter's part of the DeMaris Trust. We've had uh, a number of their uh, speakers with us before. uh, Based in uh, Southampton, I first came across them when I was at university. And uh, learn a huge amount from them and uh, still do as well. So, uh, I'd just like to just kind of introduce Peter to and just kind of just so we know a little bit more about him, ask him a few pertinent questions about him and uh, what he does and why he does it. And then we'll hear from him. There'll be a session now with questions and answers, then we'll do drinks uh, and then come back for a second session. Uh, with some uh, teaching and some Q&A as well. So, uh, Peter, um, you obviously are part of the Demoris Trust. How long have you Mm -hmm. been uh, with them? And for those who don't know, what do they do?
1: Okay, I've been with them for a decade this September. Uh, Yes. Uh, And what they do is a whole disparate bunch of things, which are quite hard to summarize very quickly, but the core uh, commitment of what we're doing is a commitment to um, helping people to understand the biblical worldview uh, in a responsible, intellectual manner, and to compare and contrast that with the uh, ideas in contemporary popular culture, um, be those ideas favorable or unfavorable uh, towards the gospel.
0: Great stuff. And what's your particular area of interest within oh. that? And sort of what do you do as part of your other day
1: jobs <laughs> <laughs> that you also do as well? Uh, well, I'm the uh, Damaris Philosopher in Residence, is my official title there. Uh, I head up quite a lot of the. Does that
0: fit uh, on a business card? to out of interest? that's a lot of letters small print small (laughs) print
1: is the key yeah Um, I do quite a lot of work with A-level students around the country uh, with Damaris schools conferences uh, and I also do speaking for for churches like this and for Christian unions and I work part time as a lecturer at a a Christian journalism college in Norway and I write books some of which I've been um, advertising to you on the screen (laughs) and uh, I do podcast channel and so things like this will end up on my podcast uh, channel eventually and um, anything that I can uh, to get people to consider seriously uh, and deal seriously with Jesus. Great, sir.
0: Well, you mind if I pray for us? Um, oh, that would be, be lovely. Yeah. Father, we just uh, pray for this evening. Lord, thank you for Peter. Lord, thank you for his uh, coming to speak to us tonight. Lord, just pray you be with him and anoint him to speak to us this evening. Father, pray that we would be challenged and provoked by all that you have to say th- uh, to us through him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Marvelous. Thanks to you, brother. Okay. Uh, well, can we, uh, you
1: pop upstairs and switch over the... Because uh, <laughs> this is going to keep going. I can't do anything about it until it's swapped over. Um, there are a few handouts dotted around the place that have some of the key, uh, particularly key quotations uh, from the slides that I'll be showing. Uh, because otherwise I sometimes find people who are like, hang, hang on a minute, I think not need writing that one down so you don't need to worry about that all the key quotations are on the worksheets and if there aren't enough of them and you want copies I've given the church the master copies and they can um, gestetner off some other ones although I'm sure you have some more modern way of doing it um, marvellous there we go yes uh, so the, it's first of all let me say it's, it's a, a privilege and honour to be invited to sort of lead this sort of four-week uh, mini apologetics introduction to apologetics course Uh, Here, And I've tried to uh, pick some of the absolutely uh, central and sort of burning issues uh, in um, thinking about the the Christian view of things and the objections that we have today. And so this first week I'm sort of concentrating on the so-called new atheism, although there isn't really anything new uh, about it, uh, of Richard Dawkins and so on and so forth. And then uh, I think uh, we've got a week on uh, the problem of evil, uh, a week looking at arguments about Jesus and who he was. And, um, and uh, I forget what I've put down in the fourth week, but I've picked, it's only remind me, it's on the, it'll be on your sheet somewhere. Um, some of the absolutely central uh, topics in this area. And uh, I wrote a book called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism a couple of years ago, which was a response to the New Atheist Movement. And I'm currently um, just about finishing writing uh, a new book uh, called, um, provisionally, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, uh, which um, the publisher came back to me and said, that, I think it would be quite an interesting book to, to read. And I, and I went, mm, I think it would be quite an interesting book to write. Um, so I'm, I'm well up on the New Atheists uh, at the moment. In the meantime, my newest book, which is a book on Jesus, which is one of the other topics that we'll cover, is coming out uh, in September this year. Uh, I've called this the incoherence of the the new atheism. An incoherent concept uh, is one like um, a square circle. Have you ever seen a square circle? Do you ever expect to see a square circle? Is it simply that you have a too limited experience of life? You know, you haven't travelled enough, and therefore, well, how can you have expected to have seen a square circle by now? No, simply by me telling you, those words you immediately can grasp but there, there just couldn't be such a thing and I think there are various uh, instances where the new atheists make claims that are philosophically on a par with claiming that there are square circles uh, let me give a bit of an introductory blurb to begin with this is a not one of the new atheists but an atheist agnostic called Michael Rees he notes that since the turn of the millennium particularly because of the events of September 11th 2001 uh, a new militancy has arisen among religious skeptics, and it was uh, an edition of Wired magazine that first coined the phrase "the new atheism." Um, and uh, in an article by editor Gary Wolf, there they said the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong; it's evil. And I think that's as good a definition of what defines someone as being a new atheist as opposed to what I suppose we now have to call old atheists or traditional atheists, perhaps a little less pejoratively. Is there someone who not only thinks that belief in God or religion is an intellectual mistake, but they think that it is morally abhorrent as well? For example, this is Christopher Hitchens. He says, I not only maintain that all religions are versions of the same untruth, But I hold that the influence of churches and the effect of religious belief is positively harmful. That's a good sort of New Atheist manifesto summary, as it were. And at the heart of the New Atheist's sort of moral issue with religion are issues about um, how we know things about reality. Philosophers have a long word for that area of thinking. They call it epistemology and it goes back to various Greek roots and so on. But all it means is, how do we know stuff? Um, and a lot of the, uh, the ire of the New Atheists come from actually their misunderstanding of how religious people think that they know what they claim to believe. New Atheists believe that at the core of even the most sort of outwardly benign uh, summer fate, tea sipping, cucumber sandwich eating, liberal uh, Christianity, to use a stereotype, is an immoral commitment to flouting your intellectual obligations. A religion lets you off the hook of being a good thinker, in other words. And even if you are, you know, a nice religious person, the fact that you are endorsing something that means you don't have to bother thinking about stuff according to them means that that legitimises those fundamentalists who because they don't have to bother thinking carefully about stuff can easily get suckered into flying jumbo jets into tower blocks you see the, the linkage but it's a, an issue there about how we know things that's at the core of this So here's a few quotes from various neo-atheists when they define what they understand faith to mean. Richard Dawkins says, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Uh, Victor Stenger says, faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence and even in the light of contrary evidence. Going slightly further even, A.C. Grayling says, faith is a commitment to belief contrary to evidence and reason. That's what they understand all religious faith to be. You see, the New Atheists uh, always trade in generalisations. Well, not always, but an awful lot. Daniel Dennett, this is a longer quote from him, and this really nails it uh, to the wall as far as the New Atheist position on this is concerned. He's a, a New Atheist from America. He says, religion is the greatest threat to rationality and scientific progress People are revered for their capacity to live in a dream world, to shield their minds from factual knowledge and make the major decisions in their lives by consulting the voices in their heads that they call forth by rituals designed to intoxicate them. Don't know which communion services he's been to, but they never let me long enough at the cup to uh, get intoxicated. Um, Imperviousness to reason, he says, I think, the property that we should most fear in religion other institutions or traditions might encourage a certain amount of irrationality but only religion demands it as a sacred duty so our sacred duty according to this guy is that we should all be demanding of one another that we be irrational well I would let other religious traditions speak for themselves but so far as the biblical religious tradition is concerned that is wrong a really good modern word to translate the word that we translate as faith in our Bibles, whether that's from the, from the Hebrew, um, have faith to believe or to trust. I think trust is a really good uh, way of communicating what Christians actually mean by faith. Um, the Greek equivalent In the New Testament, um, pistuan or pistos, meaning to be persuaded, carries the same kind of idea as the Hebrew uh, word, uh, which I probably mispronounce, amina, meaning to have faith or believe or to trust. There's nothing in those linguistic meanings about blind faith. The fact that you have to add blind to faith should tip you off that faith is not the same thing as blind faith. You know, just as chips is not the same thing as vinegar in chips. Um, And interestingly enough, this quote about the definitions in in the language of the Bible about faith comes from new atheist Sam Harris in his book, The End of Faith. But then he goes on, immediately having looked at what the words mean in in the biblical languages, he says, well, Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way, and I'm gonna argue that that is actually read in the wrong way, this passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying. That is something that you just have irrespective of the evidence. No, no, no. Uh, Here's the TNIV rendering of the verse. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But this verse is much more naturally read as being completely consistent with the Bible's constant, constant insistence on the importance of reason and evidence. And here's just a a selection of Bible verses from the Old and New Testaments, uh, from Isaiah, from Samuel, from uh, Jesus, uh, from Paul, from Peter... All reiterating the importance of reason and evidence in the context of faith. If you read Hebrews eleven one in the context of what's going on in Hebrews, which Sam Harris conspicuously fails to do, you get a very different picture. Um, this picture here, by the way, is the earliest uh, papyrus fragment of the Book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews ten thirty two to thirty six, we get this. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you became Christians, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering when you were persecuted. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew, knew, not just, you know, had blind faith that, That you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What does he mean by these better and lasting possessions? Well, their relationship with God through Jesus, their expectation of the kingdom of God coming and flourishing and ending in heaven. That's what he's talking about. So do not throw away your confidence, your trust in Jesus. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere not against contrary evidence, but against the temptation to give up because of being persecuted, because of fear. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Okay? And then we go on to Hebrews 11.1 1, in that context. So it's clear that what Hebrews 11.1, 1, the fulfillment of the divine promise of Hebrews 10.36 is what Hebrews 11.1 1 has in mind in the context. So Hebrews 11.1 1 says that a consequence of having faith or trusting God is trusting him to deliver on his promise of heaven, faith is being sure of what we hope for, heaven, without needing to personally see the fulfillment of that promise in the present time of suffering and persecution and certain of what we do not see, i.e. what we don't see yet, as a reality here and now, which we're living in the expectation that we will see. So Hebrews 11:1 does not say or imply in any way, shape or form, that faith means trusting God in the absence of any supposed reason to trust him. That's quite besides the point being made. Harris goes on to misinterpret the story of doubting Thomas from John's Gospel. As demonstrating, he says that ignorance is the true coinage of this realm. Blessed are those who've not seen and have believed. Oh, well, you know, maybe John's Gospel is endorsing this idea of, of blind faith then. Not a bit of it. Jesus commends people who believe without demanding to see for themselves not those who believe without evidence. And those are two very different things. You can have lots of evidence that someone is guilty of a crime without having seen them commit the crime. Uh, A.C. Grayling also misinterprets the story. He says that faith is a commitment to belief in the absence or in the face of, of evidence. It's accounted a theological virtue precisely for this reason, as the New Testament story of doubting Thomas shows rubbish John 14 verse 11 Jesus himself in John's gospel affirms evidence based belief in him he says believe on the evidence of the miracles before the resurrected Jesus actually did offer himself for empirical examination by Thomas Thomas was not asked to believe in the resurrection or to believe in Jesus without evidence John twenty, twenty four to twenty five. Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, when he appeared, resurrected. Nevertheless, the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas has ten of his best mates giving him their eyewitness testimony about something, and he doesn't believe on the strength of that evidence. And that's what Jesus chides him for, that he had evidence and yet didn't believe and demanded more than was reasonable. After all, every Christian in the post-ascension generation has the same evidence to back up our belief in the resurrection as Thomas before he actually saw Jesus. Jesus. And notice, this of course means that all of the other disciples are portrayed in John's Gospel as believing in Jesus, why? On the basis of their evidence that they saw, that changed their minds. So how can John's Gospel be making the point that faith is all about blind faith, using a story that portrays the majority of the disciples as only believing because of the evidence? Doesn't really hold together, does it? And indeed, John's Gospel gives us explicitly the reason why the stories in John's Gospel are being told to us. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't recorded here, but these are written that you may believe. So the signs, the miraculous signs, are given as evidence for you to believe. And that's why the story of Doubting Thomas is being told to us. So Grayling interprets the story completely against the explicit definition of why the story is being told to us by the gospel itself. It seems to me that the New Atheists completely sort of live in ignorance of verses like 1 Peter 3 verse 15, which I had going up earlier. Um, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have do it with gentleness and respect of course the Greek word that we're translating as answer here is apologia in the Greek it's what a a lawyer would do for you in court when they give their defence speech literally means an answering back case so a kind of legal justification a reasoned defence that's where we get our word apologetics from doesn't, of course, mean, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. Apologizing for it. <laughs> it means saying, hey, I'm a Christian, and I think that's the most reasonable position to take, and here's why. So J.P. Moreland, a philosopher from America, defines biblical faith as a trust in and commitment to what we have reason to believe is true. Trust in and commitment to what we have reason to believe is true. Or C.S. Lewis, favourite of mine, it says, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods or in spite of temptation, in spite of persecution, like the author of Hebrews, whoever they were, uh, was writing about so the new atheists are completely wrong about their understanding of what faith means, at least in the Christian context. But their purported defense of rationality on the other side, what, do you remember they wanted to say Christian, being Christian means being unrational, or irrational. I'm sure that well that's not true. At least not by definition, as they say. And then they want to say, but of course, join us, we'll we'll be the ones who help you to be reasonable and rational. And I'm gonna say, uh-uh. <laughs> Uh, they are actually propounding a profoundly anti rational uh, view of things. Let me give you three ways. Here's our first incoherence a self contradictory epistemology. Um, just
2: epistemology?
1: Indeed, this is there. I slipped it in earlier. This is this long word that philosophers use uh, to mean how do we know stuff? Um, how do we know stuff? And I think that this New Atheist view on how we know things or how we can show that we know things, show that our beliefs are reasonable, check that our beliefs are reasonable, is akin to saying that there is a square circle somewhere. It just doesn't hold together at all. For example, Richard Dawkins gives this advice. He says, next time somebody tells you that something's true... Here's what he thinks it's true that you should do, okay? So notice that this is Richard Dawkins telling you that something's true. Next time somebody tells you that something's true, which he's now doing, will he not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And he's very particular, you know, evidence means empirical evidence, the kind of stuff you can see and taste and smell and measure and so on. And if they can't give you a good answer in terms of evidence... I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. To which I'm immediately tempted to reply, what's your evidence for that? I think, you know, tumbleweed would start going across the the platform as he thought of a reply. Sam Harris says, while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society Sam Harris is really demanding that before I believe anything I must have evidence that it's true see that's what he's saying because you can't believe anything without evidence at least strongly but I reckon there's loads of things that he and everyone else believes strongly without evidence that we are completely rational to believe for example the demand for everything to be justified by evidence would entail an infinite regress that couldn't be satisfied if I say okay you're claiming that something's true but I'm only going to believe that if you've got evidence for it and you say okay well here's the evidence for it you might think oh I'll be happy now but of course not because I'm going to say well you've given me what you, you claim is some evidence that supports this but what's your evidence that that really is evidence and that it really does support that you might try and give me some evidence for that And I might ask the same question, and I'll ask the same question, and I'll ask the same question until an infinite number of cows come home. I'm never going to be able to fill in that kind of black hole that's trying to suck in an infinite amount of evidence that Sam Harris has just dug himself into. Well, take another angle on this. Does anyone here believe that the universe that we live in is older than five minutes old? Yeah, okay. Does anyone in here have any evidence that the universe is older than five minutes old? Okay, what's your evidence? Carbon dating with fossils. Uh, Go into how that how that would sort of pan out, how would that argument?
2: So, so they carbon dated fossils and they seem to believe that there's a certain age, which is a long time ago.
1: Yes, okay, so what the argument would be is we look at the rate of decay in carbon atoms that we observe here and now in the present, and presumably we can look at those over the last five minutes. Uh, and make a measurement during the last five minutes of something that we've dug up and do some maths and extrapolating and so on. And on the assumption that the thing we dug up didn't get created five minutes ago complete with partially decayed carbon atoms in it, we can infer that it's so many million years old or whatever. But notice the assumption that we had to make for that argument to work. We had to assume that the bone wasn't created five minutes ago complete with every sign of age, apparent age, but not genuine age. Now, what empirical evidence could anybody give for the truth of that assumption? Absolutely none, it's impossible. And yet, I would completely agree that we are all rational to believe and claim that we know that the universe is older than five minutes old. My memories of what I had for breakfast yesterday were not created five minutes ago. But if they were created five minutes ago, they would be seen to me exactly the way they do seem to me. And so the fact that I appear to remember having breakfast yesterday doesn't prove that there was a yesterday unless I assume that there was a yesterday. (laughs) So there is just one example of something that even Sam Harris believes strongly without evidence and yet doesn't mark him as someone who's mad. I think the author of this quote, and I will reveal who wrote this quote in a few moments, but I want to read it first. The author of this quote um, actually gets his theory of how we know stuff, his epistemology, right. It says, intuition, and he's talking in the context of talking about how do we know moral truths, for example. And how do you know that torturing a baby for fun is wrong? Not by seeing babies tortured for fun, or measuring what happens to them when you do that. All that will tell you is that you torture a baby for fun and certain empirical results follow. Are those results good or bad? Well, you don't measure that scientifically. Intuition denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. So saying intuiting things is really important to how we know stuff. Well, it's true in the matter of ethics, it's no less true in science. When we can uh, break our knowledge of a thing down no further, the irreducible leap that remains is intuitively taken. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition, or reason and faith, you might say, perhaps, uh, is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core as any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. You didn't know that you're never going to see a square circle because of your experience of the world. You didn't infer that you're never going to see a square circle from seeing a lot of squares and seeing a lot of circles. Well, if you understand the concepts and I say, and I think there could be a square circle just from understanding the concepts, even if you've lived your whole life in a lot, you know, dark room, <laughs> you would know that you're never going to. So judgments about what's reasonable and logical relies on, on intuition to find its feet. The point I trust is obvious, we cannot step out of the darkness of not knowing without taking a first step. And reason, without knowing how, understands this axiom, if it's to understand anything at all. The reliance on intuition should be no more discomforting to the ethicist than it has been for the physicist. So unlike the quote that we had from Sam Harris, this author is saying, no, no, if you demand evidence for everything until you believe anything, you will never believe anything. To be rational at all, there has to be things that uh, that escape that kind of infinite regress. Who is the author of this paragraph? Sam Harris. It's astonishing to me. Well, there you go. So sometimes he does get it right. You know, atheists are not wrong about everything. Um, here's another long word: anthropology, um, study of people. A self-contradictory view of, of, of human nature. Um, Sam Harris is very hot on the fact that there is no free will. It's just an illusion. Free will is nowhere to be found. He says, given the truth of naturalism. Every action is reducible to a totality of impersonal events. Just propagating their influence. One thing causes another thing causes another thing genes are transcribed, neurotransmitters bind to their receptors in your brain, muscle fibres contract, and John Doe pulls the trigger of his gun and murders someone. But he didn't really choose to murder anyone. His finger was just caused to move because his muscles moved, and the muscles moved because his brain chemistry did this, and his brain chemistry did this because of, and so on and so forth. And the idea that John Doe is responsible for killing someone. It's ludicrous, says Sam Harris. Richard Dawkins says pretty much the same thing. This is it's quite a shocking quote, this. Um, Human brains, though they're not working in the same way as man-made computers are, just as surely governed by the laws of physics. There's no difference between your mind and your brain. on a materialistic worldview. You just are your brain. And that just is a physical thing working according to the laws of physics. When a computer malfunctions, we don't punish it. We track down the problem and fix it. Uh, isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? Defective genes or whatever. Concepts like blame and responsibility are banded around freely, <laughs> where human wrongdoers are concerned. But doesn't a, a mechanistic view, a naturalistic view of the, the nervous system, of what makes a person a person, make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? Any crime is, in principle, blamed on antecedent conditions acting through the accused physiology, heredity, environment, etc., etc. Why do we vent such visceral hatred on child murderers? Or that guy who just went through a, a summer camp for labour supporters in Norway shooting people repeatedly. Why do we get you know, uptight about that kind of thing? when well, we should simply regard them as faulty units that need fixing or replacing. Now, it seems to me that the logic the, of his position here, the kind of outworking of given that I'm a materialist, if I believed that starting point, I think logic might well Drive me to believe that conclusion. But actually, the fact that that conclusion is so unbelievable drives me to reject the starting point. You see, you can argue it, if the, if the argument works, is where you can argue it either way. Which is more plausible to you? That matter is all there is and people are just robots, basically, biological machines, or that people. Don't have responsibility for murdering other people. Put them in the balance, see where it comes out for you. So, let me put it in the form of a question and an answer. If everything about a person is governed by the laws of physics, blaming them for their intellectual failings, such as having blind faith, say makes as much sense surely as Newton blaming gravity holding it morally responsible for giving him an apple sized bump on the head it's basically what Dawkins and Sam Harris are saying so how can anyone for example a Christian be responsible for not living up to their intellectual obligations if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place well you see my answer there they can't surely how do you square that you know? so the new atheists are coming along and say, oh it's terrible not to live up to your intellectual responsibilities by having all this religious faith stuff that they misdefine mis- but on the other hand they're telling us that, oh by the way no one's responsible for anything come on be responsible no one's responsible and our last one we started a, a little bit late but we'll soon be done Um, This is A.C. Grayling in his, um, well, it's not exactly a parody of the Bible, but a sort of secular Bible structured in a similar kind of way to the Bible called The Good Book, A Secular Bible. It's a very bad book. (laughs) Um, You can read my my review online at uh, the Be Thinking uh, UCCF website if you want to. Uh, In there he says, uh, or someone that he edits says, uh, it's our attitudes to things that give them their value whether good or bad or indifferent, is saying things aren't really right or wrong in themselves. Claims about what's right and wrong aren't true, full stop. They're just true for you or for me, you know. Strawberry ice cream is nice because I like that, but hey, you don't have to like strawberry ice cream. You can prefer pistachio. Of course, there's a difference between us. If I like strawberry and you like pistachio, but it's not like one of us is wrong about it. You know, If you think torturing small children for fun is, is okay, well, I don't think that, but you know, that's only true for me. It's obviously true for you that torturing small children for fun is fine. There's a difference between us. We can't really say that one of us is wrong and the other one Right. It's only our attitudes that make things right and wrong. I and mean, if only A.C. Grayling could come to, you know, even at the, you know, if, even if he had to sort of get the psychoanalyst kind of watch swinging in front of him uh, to brainwash him into a warm and fuzzy attitude towards, I don't know, Christian religion, then Christianity would be a good thing for him, you know. The fact that he thinks it's a bad thing, I mean, that's just his particular personal predilection that we, you know, not really claiming that it's true that Christianity is bad. Mm. The universe we observe, says Richard Dawkins, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, i.e. no God, no creator behind it all. No evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Nature just is and stuff happens. No good, no evil. He talks about this distinction between factual matters that you can empirically prove and so on and normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. If I claim the Holocaust was evil I've just said something that has no meaning according to Dawkins. When... Dawkins says Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men you do have to remember of course that he doesn't mean it not literally when he says faith is an evil because it requires no justification you have to remember he doesn't really mean it so The new atheist view of of right and wrong seems to be this. On the one hand, they're very keen, very hot on the fact that we have objective moral obligations, they think, to oppose religion because religion, in their view, is an objectively bad thing because, in their view, it encourages people to ignore their intellectual. Once
0: again, a self-contradiction.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) it's very hard to sometimes and on the other hand they're saying but there are no objective moral values you know and they can't have it both ways how can you feel an intellectual obligation to agree with a world view that denies any reality to intellectual obligations how is it possible to argue for come and believe this because you see that it's the result believing it is the result of a good argument but of course if you come to believe this you'll have to realise that you know, you're not obligated to believe things because there are good arguments for it um, hmm. so the Atheists misunderstand mischaracterise the definition of faith according to the biblical view of things and they put forward an alternative that is I think self-contradictory at at least three levels. Um, So given that these were your choices of views to believe, I think it would be a a hands-down dunk for the Christian side, um, just on that level, because you just can't believe things that are self-contradictory. It doesn't get worse than that in philosophy. That's game over, man. Okay, that's the end of first presentation, and we'll have a bit of Q&A time and break time and try and get back on Time track because we had a bit of a technical malfunctions and introductory stuff at the beginning this week. But there we go. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you have questions immediately, we can take them or we can sort of have a couple of minutes break and then reconvene. Uh, whatever our uh, esteemed.
0: Did QA for the moment. Jeff will get drinks out in about five minutes.
1: Great. OK. Well, there you go. That's advice. So I'm going to go back to the slim fast and uh, you can come back with the questions.
0: Any questions? Speak um, language. My husband's not a Christian and he's put forward many, many of these arguments. Mm. Um, and from my own experience, I know it's pointless getting angry mm. in my argument back. How can you if people who do not believe in Jesus actually have a veil over the mm. sex? Is there any point in getting
1: into this kind of argument?
0: And it's great for us, because we can see the flaws, but is there any real point if the person you're speaking to has that veil
1: still and cannot, Mm. by reason, come to Jesus? Yeah, excellent question, and it's a question at the heart of a lot of the whole issue of doing Christian apologetics, really. Is it something that's only useful for Christians? well if it is there's still a use to it but you know, is it something that's useful for the non-Christian um, and I think my perspective on that is that I don't I don't have a blanket view, I would neither say of course apologetics is going to help all non-Christians um, just show them a good argument and they'll come to Christ <laughs> uh, but neither would I say it can't help non-Christians um, and of course uh, I mean think back to the 1 Peter 3 15 passage which is kind of the, the, the apologist verse in the Bible as it were that you should be prepared to give reasons and it immediately talks about but but do it with gentleness and respect so I, I, I very value your comments about not getting angry and I hope I wasn't coming across as angry at the New Atheist precisely, but more kind of exasperated. Uh, exasperation is okay, I think. Um, anger, not, not so good. Um, <laughs> maybe a fine line sometimes. Yeah, you have to watch it. Um, but in the context of um, prayerful personal relationship, um, a, a sort of holistic view of, of, of Christianity and loving your neighbor as yourself and all of that, I do think biblically that we see that apologetics has a role to play and different Christian theologies will have a slightly different understanding of how that works in relation to the fallenness of man and the work of the Holy Spirit and so on I would certainly say that the work of the Holy Spirit is a necessary condition of people being converted my own perspective would be that it's not a not necessarily a, a sufficient condition, it needs to be there but people have to, in my view, cooperate with it as well. And there are plenty of biblical examples that you can look at in terms of people like um, Cornelius's family, um, people at Athens that Paul was, you know, doing his apologetic speech before the, the Philosopher's Council in Athens and some people ridiculed it and some people said, mm, that's interesting but we want to think about it a bit more and learn a bit more before we make our minds up and some people became Christians eventually, including a lady called Damaris at the end of that chapter 17, uh, which uh, is where gets his name from. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think our task is to love the other person, and part of that includes loving their mind and their, their intellectual needs just as much as their kind of emotional needs and their heart needs. Uh, I think all people made in the image of God, although every aspect of this has fallen, every aspect is also good. It's not as good as it was intended to be. But just as much as when Paul, you know, talks about um, the pagans show that they have the law of God written on their heart, sometimes accusing them, but sometimes defending them, even though they don't have the, the written law. It says people can know what the right thing to do is apart from having revelation And sometimes people can do the right thing. Um, But sometimes they don't, because we're fallen. I I think it's a similar kind of thing about our intellectual fallenness. Um, I think if they come to us with this kind of reasoning, it is reasonable for us to have this kind of fuel, to throw it back and get them to think a little bit more. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, and at the very least, it will dispel the notion that they're putting across that you know being Christian means just going la la la. I want to believe what I want to believe because it's comforting to me. You know, that's what their image of a Christian is. And if you can shatter that image, it, it just gives that extra you know extra stepping stone of well, actually, okay, I don't. I'm not being asked to chuck my brain out of the door here.
0: I think so. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think you know certain sections of the church have played into that over the years, various factors. Um, but I think you know I gave you a list of, of verses there from throughout the Bible, and the, the the constant thing that Jesus and the apostles and the early church are doing are, is going out and proclaiming the message, and reasoning and giving evidence and loving people and making a difference in their life and praying for them. and They're doing the whole lot. And I think to abstract any of it, you know, just to sort of say, well, we are just preach the gospel by going doing social work. You know, the sort of St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and use words if you need to. Well, I think you, you need to. <laughs> you know. Um, but you should also do the other stuff too. <laughs> yeah.
2: Spent fifty years of my life as an agnostic scientist and came to faith about ten years ago. And really I came to faith. I'm not quite sure why God chose that moment, but it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. I had to make my own way. Um, but my wife prayed for me for a very long time. I don't know if that's encouraging or not (laughs) (laughs)
0: for you. It's a long time. But nevertheless
2: ultimately you know, by I read
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm. 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 Yeah. 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 This, I'm going to kind of put my neck on the line here because this does raise a, a tricky kind of in-house issue, one of those tricky in-house theological issues about sort of Calvinism and Arminianism and all that. Um, you know. So, my perspective, take it or leave it. Um, Absolutely we have to pray for the situation, but I do not expect that God answers that kind of prayer by suddenly going, okay, you've prayed enough for so-and-so to become a Christian now, I will make them become a Christian. Uh, I I think back to Jesus' words about Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, how many times have I longed to gather you to my breast as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I, I do believe that that element of free will is 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 there and in the end if someone doesn't respond positively to God it's not because God has just decided well you know, I don't want you God loves everyone you know? um, so there's you know God's not arbitrarily deciding whether or not he's going to answer that kind of prayer for you but that does also mean that he can't guarantee a positive outcome but what you can certainly pray for is is your uh, capacity to to be christ's ambassador in that situation not to get angry to do the loving as of the whole you know yeah i mean it, it's it, 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 it of course it'll be there of course it'll be there um so, again, I don't know if that's sort of in, in, encouraging or not, but I, I, you know, I think people can work themselves into a position of, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying for this person. Why isn't God answering my prayer? Um no, i, I think but, about you. Yeah. <laughs> I do wish
2: sometimes
1: God could just... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, yeah. But, yeah, the, I, I think the, the, the fact that God has set things up such that he, he can't or won't simply overrule it also doesn't mean that he's not involved in the situation and, and longing for the same thing that you're longing for and wanting to be as, as helpful as one can while still respecting the dynamic of, of, of genuine love, which is free will. So, yeah, it's a tough one, but, yeah.
0: One more question is where Steve's still going next, strong next door to where drinks are. So let's do one more question and then we'll break. Okay. Yeah.
2: Sure. Can I, sure. uh, about, um, when I When I sort of do sort of brief workshops on this subject, I, I'm very clear to distinguish religion from faith. Yeah. And um, in other words, religion, is in words is what we do. And mm. We can see what we do. We fly aeroplanes into blocks and, mm. and tower blocks and all this kind of stuff. And faith is actually what God does through Jesus. And and Richard Dawkins, who's a clever chap, is very cynical in his book, Mm. his God Delusion, in as Mm. much as he he milks the religion things, the things that we do, to prove that faith is evil. That's a different thing. And I think that's an important distinction to make.
1: What what the new atheists basically do, I think, when they they harp on about the evils of religion and give, as you can, obviously can give, a whole... You know, endless almost list of examples of people who profess to believe certain religious things doing undescribably wicked stuff uh, and sometimes explicitly linked to what they believe religiously. And this goes even for Christians as well. You know, we can't make an exception for ourselves here. But there is a certain amount of of sort of data picking or selective attention. It's a little bit like you know arguing that, you know, love or or sex or food are, are, are terrible things because let me give you all these examples of people who've you know got sexually transmitted diseases through having sex or have gone barren because of it or have choked because they were eating something you know they they believed in food and they they desired it and they they started eating the pretzel and they choked on it and they, they, you know, they put food before their children. The, poor, you know, the children didn't have a choice about whether or not they were going to eat, did they? They were just, eat your greens, dear. And, you know, they had an allergic reaction to it. And it was terrible. And it's like, well, however long the list of that kind of stuff you can produce. And, hey, you could produce quite a long one. particularly you know, crimes of passion and murders and all sorts of things, couldn't you? <laughs> I don't think that goes one whit to show that love or sex or food are terrible things that we ought to try and ban or you know, live without whatever You know, so that, that's the kind of they do a bit of this kind of blinkered tunnel vision um, rhetorically I think yeah
0: well, let's, let's break there um, if we could be back at 22 about 7 or 8 minutes that would be really helpful drinks
1: are available in the